amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Morning with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. I also want to let you know we're on Stitcher now, on Amazon Music, on iHeartRadio, iTunes, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. So wherever you are listening to your regular music, you could tune into a podcast. I encourage you to leave a comment or follow or make suggestions. Love to hear from you. This morning, I have a very interesting guest. I came across another podcast and uh, heard about his work, and I thought it would be enlightening for a lot of people, uh, parents, uh, people, police, uh, social workers, um, you know, foster care, all kinds of people, I think this information would be useful for. He is the Associate Dean for Innovation and Academic Affairs, founding director of the SAFE Labs, and co-director of the Justice, Equity, and Technology Lab at Columbia School of Social Work. He is a leading pioneer in the field of making AI empathetic, culturally sensitive, and less biased. He is also the co-chair of the Racial Equity Task Force, at the Data Science Institute, and founder of the SimEd Tech Incubator at Columbia University. Dr. Patton's research uses virtual reality to educate youth and policymakers about the ways social media can be used against them and how race plays a part. Good morning, Dr. Desmond Upton Patton. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on and waking up. I know most people sleep late on Saturday, so I appreciate you <laughs> getting up <laughs> and sure. talking with me. Um, wow, this is some really interesting stuff that you're doing. So you're dealing with gangs and social media. I guess let's start with the issue of what is a gang? Yeah, so, you know, what we know is that the conception of gangs has really changed in the 21st century. You know, crime policies of the 80s and 90s really locked up or killed many individuals that were gang leaders. And so the types of groups and organizations that we're referring to today are really kind of small 
factions that are neighborhood-based, block-based, street-based that aren't necessarily highly organized but are really about kind of the neighborhood group. Um, There may be um, um, criminality or drug involvement. Oftentimes it is a way to collaborate on music um, and a way in which you fuel the music is to engage in um, other um, other behaviors. But we're really talking about kind of smaller street neighborhood groups. But in my work, I think the hardest thing to understand or to identify is who might be gang involved, right? And the relationship mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. gang involvement and, and, and gang people has really changed. And so some people may be you know, formally in a gang or in a neighborhood where there are lots of gangs and they may claim to be gang involved, but not really. So that has really um, shifted in the social media era. Now, how old is the average gang member these days? I mean, are they 18 and up or younger than that? You know, I think that the, the, point of entry can vary and it depends on your particular context, right? So some people may grow up in a family that may have gang affiliations or gang ties. Uh, And so you may be born into a context where family members have long-term associations. And then you have OGs that can be 40, 50, 60 years old that are still connected or have some ties or affiliations. Now, why do people or young people join gangs? What What is the purpose? How does that fulfill their lives or make it easier for them or protect them? Why is, why is it because protection? What, what are reasons? Well, I think people affiliate with gangs for the same reasons why many of us join groups and organizations. It is for community. It may be the community. It might be It may be for protection, but it could also be for love and for care to feel a part of something, particularly if you're living in a community or in a context where you may feel depowered or delegitimized. And let me ask you this. Are there more men? Are there more women in gangs? Do you know that statistic? I do not. Uh, What we do know is that young women, women uh, have always been a part of gangs, whether they are in uh, predominantly male-oriented gangs or if they're in uh, female-oriented gangs. What I've been talking and learning more about in my research, however, is the kind of the different positionality of women in gangs that, is, that could be granted to them via social media. And so I've been studying a young woman that was murdered in 2014 that um, uh, was very much um, a, a high figure um, in the gang that she associated with. Um, and so I think that the, the positionality shift and change um, has, has changed um, in, a, in a space, in a digital space where you can curate an identity um, that can get you a lot of attention. Now, the young lady you're speaking about, um, Ja'Kyra Barnes, is that the woman that there was a, yeah, like I guess an episode created about more about her. Um, I know she was very young, um, but like you said, she was very powerful and high. Talk, talk, tell the audience a little more about her. 
Yeah, I came to know Ja'Kyra Barnes' story via popular media in 2014, right after she had been murdered, uh, allegedly by an oppositional gang just stepped from her um, home in the Woodlawn neighborhood of Chicago. You know, Ja'Kyra is particularly interesting in that um, she was 17 years old when she was murdered, and the mythology around her is that she had shot or killed up to 17 to 20 people. Now, there were never any convictions, never any arrests for that, and there's never there's no um, credible evidence that that is necessarily true, um, but that is the mythology that was carried on around her via Twitter and, you know, the neighborhood. Um, Ja'Kyra, I've learned so much about her life via the diary she essentially left on Twitter. And it's very complicated because the story that you will read about her is that she was this bloodthirsty killer, she first asked questions later, that she didn't feel any pain. And that is not Mm. the story that she told on Twitter. And it's oftentimes not the story that we hear about young black girls and that she was just like all black girls. She wanted, she loved her family. She wanted to protect her family. She felt pain and has had experienced more death and more trauma than most of us will ever experience in our lifetime. And you can see via her Twitter account the point at which she began to transition into a more callous individual, a more hardened individual as a protective measure to keep herself safe and to keep others around her safe because the death and grief that she was exposed to was just abnormal. Um, and too much for any child to have to experience. She loved her family deeply, has an amazing mother that just wanted her child to be safe. Um, And so I I think that there's a more complex and more nuanced story about Ja'Kyra than you will ever read about her. Well, that, that, um, I guess, movie or mini episode was just really engrossing. As I was telling you before we started, I have a daughter, and uh, Ja'Kyra... was I guess 13 or something because they said she dropped out in the first year of uh, high school and I was thinking what if my daughter dropped out of high school first of all she would not be I'm a killer (laughs) she knows that I'm a killer but um, my daughter I guess I'm like what makes the difference between my child and and Jakira and like you said she's not all bad it's like people have this perception that children that are in gangs are maybe all bad or, you know, all negative. And, but like you saw, she had all these different nuances. Um, one of the things that was brought up in the film and, and also in your research about grief and how these gang members are sharing their grief online. Um, you know, there's different stages of grief and they showed all of them, I guess, or mostly all of them, um, online what how did you figure out what they were saying online because they used these emojis um and how did you figure out what they were saying and what they mean yeah that's a great question i think initially it's important to state i don't know what they were saying online and that was a really uh, important um, point in my research and that i am a black man i had lived and studied in chicago for several years, I thought that I was familiar with language and the culture, and I was not. And a part of it is that it was so hyper-local in terms of um, 
using words to depict kind of neighborhood um, institutions and experiences and then integrating that with African-American vernacular English and then the ways in which things are communicated in hip-hop and drill music um, and then layering layering that with, you know, general text speak that is oftentimes shortened or um, using emoji and hashtag and memes to, like, it's like hieroglyphics. And so in order Mm -hmm. to be able to get close to meaning and understanding, we hired young people from Chicago, uh, individuals that were either current or formerly gang involved, to be research assistants in our lab, and they would help us to translate and interpret general meaning. Now, it's important to note that even they had differences in interpretation, but there were some general kind of broad strokes of understanding that they all had that we didn't have. Uh, and that I thought was important because if you misinterpreted what was being said, that could be as violent as allowing, you know, troubling posts to persist on social media. Now, how did you get the kids to come in? I mean, did you um, have money or was it just um, a high school kids you found that might be interested? How did you get them to agree to come in and help you out? Yes, I'm a social worker, and it's extremely important to build trust and rapport with community members and to identify brokers into communities. And so um, I have a friend uh, that was, we went to the same uh, graduate program at the University of Chicago, and he um, had been running, he was an executive director of a violence prevention program in the city. Uh, and so he was my entry point into meeting young people. What I so appreciated about this this whole experience is that he didn't just let me talk to his young people. We spent, I remember sitting in front of Leona's in Hyde Park on the phone mm-hmm. with him, and he grilled me to make sure that my that my um, goals were in place, that there were benefits for young people, that my mindset was right. And then after that, you know, our um, conversation, then he felt comfortable to introduce me to young people. And so that was my entry point into meeting young people. And then he also would take me to different violent organizations throughout the city to meet additional folks. Um, in the in the movie, I saw there was a woman named Bianca who was a former gang member, um, and, she, and she helped you out and you guys helped each other out. How did she tell the audience how she helped you being a former gang member? What what did that aid in your research? Yes, at the time, Bianca was affiliated with a violence prevention organization, and she became skilled in being able to identify some of the conversations and back and forth that was happening on social media. I think what's important to know about Bianca is that she had the relationships offline that allowed her to understand who the major players were online. So she was doing her own kind of cognitive geocoding of people and conversations and relationships that I think was just brilliant. And so she was able to bring that insight to her own violence prevention uh, work. And I have to say, you know, she was, you know, uh, well before her time in kind of understanding that social media is a major player in community-based violence. And if you're not paying attention, if you don't consider the role of social media in the lives of young people, you're actually not doing a good job. You know, you're not doing a good job. Now, what's this term, internet banging? 
talk to the audience. What yeah, does that so mean? It's, it's not a term that I love anymore, <laughs> but okay. at the time, uh, we, my colleagues and I, uh, Robert Eshman and Dirk Butler, we were all, we were all um, classmates at the University of Chicago, and we wanted to <clears throat> put a definition and some conceptual parameters around this new behavior that we were seeing around young people that may be gang involved who are leveraging social media to taunt and to make threats and engage in aggressive communication. And so when we started to see this behavior, we went to the literature, and there was absolutely nothing there. There was nothing Mm. about this new phenomenon. So we wanted to write a conceptual paper that define some of these behaviors. And so the, the term is really just a play on uh, uh, gang banging. But, you know, years later, now that I have studied and kind of immersed myself in this space online, number one, it's important that we rethink the use of gang member in terms of our language. Um, these are individuals that may have associations like we all do. And mm-hmm. the label of gang member can be quite problematic in that that's the only identity that is given to you, and we can't see you for who you are, who, you, who you've been, and who you may become. And then these behaviors are, you know, no different from some of the political harassment and hate that we also see on social media. So it's not a gang-related activity. It is an activity that can be engaged in by any individual. Uh, I think the difference in why we have been studying this so much is the context is that when young Black and Latinx young people engage in this behavior and then they live in an ecology of violence, that that can mean death for them. Whereas in a political context, the conversation, the behavior can continue, but that individual is okay. The rest of us are not. Mm. So they're pathologized. Pathologized. The, the the gang, the young kids. It's this pathology. Whereas if they're political, it's for good purposes. I mean, basically, that's what you're trying to say. <laughs> well, I don't think it's for good purposes, but the behavior is allowed. And their individual safety is not at risk. Well, you know, that's similar with the whole thing of welfare. Like, they say what people who get welfare, the picture that comes to people's minds is this um, person of color, usually a woman of color with lots of babies. But the government gives bailouts to large corporations (laughs) um, all the time on a consistent basis, probably things we don't even, aren't even aware of, you know, that are happening um, to keep the quote unquote economy afloat. That's what is the reasoning many times, you know? Um, So it's um, interesting. Now this uh, internet banging, okay, we won't want to say that anymore, but you found out there was this two day window between the person's grief and their aggression that they might take or retaliation. How did you figure that out? Tell the audience about that. Yeah, so we created a corpus of social media data that started with Jakaira, and then we scraped her network, the individuals that were closely tied to her based on mentions and replies on Twitter. And so we then had a corpus of data, which had around 300 users, plus or minus, and around 2 million tweets all from Chicago. Now, 
again, this doesn't necessarily mean that all of these individuals have gang involvement, but they are a part of the same network on Twitter. Um, what we found is that um, aggression and grief were not random behaviors, that they were closely linked together, and that there was a direction um, in which uh, expressions of grief oftentimes preceded more aggressive comments, and that there would normally be, on average, about a two-day window between someone posting about grief and then someone posting about aggression. So this is a light bulb moment in that we then understood that young people are not jumping online to be violent, that young black kids are not inherently violent, that most of their communication is about processing and about getting support and getting help, and that over time, as people, other people who may know them or not, begin to intervene and comment on how they express themselves online, then their language will shift and become more aggressive over time. But this is an important piece because oftentimes when we talk about this phenomena, we only talk about <clears throat> aggression and threat. But young people are actually engaged in help-seeking behavior. They are agentic in their actions and behaviors online. We don't talk about that. How we do you, how do you identify that? How do you identify that the person is grieving um, and that they want help? Um, and, and that you think that they're really being genuine in that, or, or they, you know, just trying to say those things. How, how do you discern that? Yeah, so a, a couple of features. Number one, we look at text, and we look at image and video, and we look at the words that are being used, and we look at the conversations that unfold from that. And so there are a number of words or emojis that might be used that are consistent with how people talk about grief online. And then there are the same language and emoji that come from young black youth that may be harder for individuals to decipher because they don't code it as grief. They don't see it as grief. They don't understand the language. They don't make sense of it. That's why having young people involved, we call them domain experts, is critically important mm-hmm. because they help us see behind the words. They have to see behind the image. And so in a, in a, in a post that, from my perspective, may look like, aggression, a young person from the same context would see something very different. They would see pain. They would see grief. And we wanted to honor their cultural interpretation and expertise in that space. Do you think that you'll go into maybe working on, like, uh, uh, Asian, Latino, and and white gangs, or is your focus going to be always children of color and and how they're represented and, and what they're doing yeah, I am particularly interested in the experience of the black folk. And so I think I will always kind of have at my core uh, a passion and an interest in the development and well-being of young black people. Um, so that will persist. Um, and how that kind of carries forward is I'm now working on a project with a pastor and a psychiatrist uh, from Columbia to study grief in Harlem, particularly with the COVID-19 and anti-Black racism. So this finding from Jakaira has led to new work to study Black people more generally, not just young people, but Black people more generally, and to really understand how digital grief is expressed and how can we use artificial intelligence and other tools to be able to help people identify signals of grief in digital spaces. Do you think this can be used in a negative way? I mean, your your work is wonderful, and you're trying to identify when things are happening and, and the behaviors, but couldn't it be used 
uh, in a negative way, maybe by the police, by the government. I mean, I just found out, I'm trying to get ready for you, there's a national gang center, a government agency. They, they're, they're tracking gangs and, and trying to find out about gangs. Like, you're seeing them as a human, but they may be seeing them as animals. Right. This is the major contention in my work. This, this is the ethical dilemma that, that keeps me up at night. So what we know is that on one end, young people, young black youth can die based on what they say online. And their moms, their cousins, their siblings, their parents will want anything that's going to keep them safe. And so if there's a tool that can keep them safe, that's what they want. And it kind of reminds mm-hmm. me of, you know, black people supporting the 1994 crime bill. They want it to be safe. They want it death yeah. to end. And on the other end, that same tool, machine learning, uh, computer vision, can be used to hyper-surveil black communities with no context, no understanding of African-American vernacular English, no understanding of the surrounding context, and can be used as an apparatus for mass incarceration, digital incarceration, because of the misuse of these tools. And it is happening. It is a big, big problem because many police departments and other institutions are surveilling usually only black and brown communities without asking themselves, am I the right person to be looking at this data? Do I know what's being said? And are there... Mm -hmm non-punitive ways in which we can leverage social media to actually help people as, a, as opposed to penalizing them. Do you think the defund the police movement is something that might help this, bring, like bring context to these kids and what they're going through and how to help them? Um, do you think that movement can help or aid what you're trying to do? I think what the movement can do is help redirect resources to better supporting young people in digital environments. And I think that one of the biggest things that I've learned is that there is a tremendous need for digital literacy education and that we all need to understand that social media and emerging technologies are not going anywhere. They may shift and morph, but they're only going to become a larger part of our life and that it's not this separate virtual thing that a lot of older folks think, oh, there's a thing you do online. <laughs> For many young people, it is the thing. It is a part of life. It is a part of their day-to-day. We need education to help people understand that they are now citizens of this digital ecological environment, and they need to understand what it means to be a citizen of that environment. And so oftentimes you have that 13-year-old signing up for Facebook, they have no idea what it means to be a part of that community, but we allow it because they hit the, the magic number. No, you need to understand what this new environment is, mm-hmm. and we need resources and money and support to do that well. Is there an age where parents should start being concerned about their children's activity online? Um, if Should they not have privileges until they're after 18? Do you think will work in terms of uh, parents and how they can help their kids online online activity? Well, I think it's... I think as soon as you start handing your child that tablet or allowing them to be on any type of technology tool, then you need to be a part of their technology life. And this doesn't mean necessarily hovering over them and censoring everything that they do, because there's a lot of amazing and great things that can happen from technology, right? 
But mm-hmm. oftentimes parents are not having critical conversations about what their young people are doing online. And so I think that you first need to ask yourself a set of questions, ask your child a set of questions, like, who do you hang out with online? The same questions that you would ask your child if they were going to go outside and play with other kids are the same types of questions you would want to ask them about their online life. Um, what are the things that you're working on coming um, in, the, in the future um, with your safe lab or, uh, research? Yeah, we have some really exciting things happening. So my colleague from Computer Science, who just submitted a National Science Foundation grant to study uh, black grief. Um, and so we're going to be studying black communities at Columbia University and in Harlem. We created this web-based interface to allow people to write about their experiences with grief. And then we're going to use artificial intelligence to identify signals of grief. And then we want to create a training program that helps social workers, outreach workers, community residents that are interested in grief to be able to identify signals of grief in online spaces. Uh, and then we have a host of programming that we're doing, right? So we've been working with the Brownsville Community Justice Center. We created a youth technology lab there to help black and brown young people become uh, technologists. Uh, we run the AI for All Summer program where black, brown, Asian, indigenous young people in high school can come to Columbia for three weeks to study artificial intelligence and social work. And then we also have a user research lab called the USR lab where we're trying to have um, family incarcerated citizens who come home to, to think about jobs and technology, and so we're creating opportunities for them to learn more about user research and to leverage their lived experience as the main expertise in the space. Wow, you're a busy man. When do you sleep? When do you have self care time? <laughs> I mean, seriously, what do you do for self care? How do you deal with your grief uh, in in life, and even grief like now with this COVID, people have grief <clears throat> of maybe losing job, not being able to be close to their family members, or actually people dying that they know and they can't even go see them in the hospital. How how are you handling all of this? Yeah, you know, I have an amazing supportive husband that grounds me and uh, you know keeps me in check what I'm doing too much. <laughs> we have a new puppy that is seven months old that is all over the place, oh. and, you know, that's been fun. Um, and we like to go upstate and just relax and to be in nature, you know, and just, like, really cutting, cutting things off, right? So having boundaries, mm-hmm. right? I'm not going to work on the weekends. I'm not going to work past 5 p.m. No, I'm not going to take your text message after hours. We can do all the things we need to do within respectable time. And creating those boundaries and having the privilege to create those boundaries has been really um, important for me. What do you tell people in dealing with grief in general? How should they be handling it? Is there a normal way? I mean, there's different stages of grief, and some people, you know, go round and round in them. What What are some tips and tricks you can give people in this COVID age and this political uh, tinderbox age to deal with grief? Number one, I think that grief is natural. It's natural, it is real, and you should face it, and you should understand it, and you should understand that your grief is going to look different from other people as well. You should talk to people. Be willing to be as expressive as you need to be. Use your words. Use your body uh, to get those feelings out, and then get support. Get support from someone professionally, talk to family members, and talk to friends, but do not um, do not stay uh, to yourself because oftentimes a lot of folks um, ball up and the grief becomes mm. inward and stays inward. 
We need to get it out. We need to talk about it. We need to process it. We need to identify it. We need to bring awareness to it, and then we need to continue to figure out how to live with it. It doesn't go away. It doesn't disappear. Right. But we can. There yeah. are many tools to help us continue to live our life with it. Wow, this has been eye-opening. I hope the audience will enjoy um, this talk we just had. And I appreciate you coming on on an off day when you should not be working (laughs) (laughs) to talk to me um, about your work and the future of social media, grieving, uh, all these different issues. Thank you so much, Dr. Patton. Um, And and I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you so much. And take good care. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Um, I just got off the phone with Dr. Desmond Upton Patton. We were talking about social media and gang violence. But we also delved into the issue of grief and grieving and, and how to recognize that online and children, how to handle it as adults, you know, in this COVID age. So uh, if you have a chance, um, if you missed the beginning, tr- please go back and, and listen to uh, the beginning of the episode. A lot of great work is being done by him at Columbia University, um, helping young people, um, young people of color specifically, uh, dealing with gangs and gang violence um, and how social media connect. But for now, you can follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter. Also check me out on Facebook. Saturday mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram with Saturdays with Joy Keys. Also, you can email me, um, Saturdays with Joy Keys, at hotmail.com. I thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate your support. Again, you can follow us um, also on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, iTunes, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. You guys have a wonderful weekend. Stay safe. Remember to wash your hands and all of that. And um, have a little fun, you know. Um, Get out and get some air if you can. If it's not raining where you are, don't be isolated. Um, Still try to connect with people online in a positive way, maybe through Zoom or something like that. All right. You have a great weekend. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? 
where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.